one of uh, Pastor Stewart and I sort of running jokes, I guess, if you will, and people who know me well enough know this too, is movie lines. I am I'm terrible at movie lines. He can recite a movie line, and I have no idea what it came from. Um, I, I just am not good in terms of movies and have very little repertoire, but that's why you don't hear movie illustrations too often from me, but I, I do know this one. 14 years ago, the highest grossing independent film was a Christian movie, some of you remember it, called Fireproof. Um, I won't go back over the plot, but there was a song in that movie that got a lot of airplay on Christian radio at the time, John Waller's While I'm Waiting. Um, one of those sort of relatable songs, kind of prayers to God during a time of suffering, time of waiting on the Lord to act, um, trying to endure through a difficult season. Just like I, I, I don't talk movie lines, I won't sing this for you either. I'll just read this to you, and that will bless you that I'm reading it and not singing it. But the chorus goes, while I'm waiting, I will serve you. While I'm waiting, I will worship. While I'm waiting, I will not faint. I'll be running the race even while I wait. Seasons of, of suffering, seasons of hardship, depression, uh, discouragement, pain, uh, relational hardship, all sorts of things. Those sorts of seasons can tend to sideline us. They can tend to isolate us because there's that, that movement sometimes away from people, that, that sense of wanting maybe to be alone or the pain feels like it's too much or there's some humiliation that goes with the suffering, it, it, just a measure of just wanting to, to withdraw from others. And seasons of suffering can cause us to, to isolate. They can also cause us to lash out. It's what James talked about at the beginning of chapter 4 when he talked about the, 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 the anger, the warring, the quarreling, the fighting, and how that's stirred by our hearts and our heart desires that wage war within us. And so when we're suffering I may think somebody's causing it. I may think you're being insensitive to me as I'm suffering, and it may cause me to, to lash out at you. And so to, to do the opposite, to, to worship God, to give him glory and praise him, to want to draw near to him, to want to reach out to people and to love people and to serve people, even in the midst of hardship, is not ordinarily the way that we are inclined. We need God's grace in order to do that. And yet it is that serving and worshiping and, and persevering that are precisely what we are called to as followers of Jesus Christ. That is following in the steps of Christ, and that is what we are commanded to do, in fact. The writer in Hebrews, speaking to believers who are undergoing persecution, says to run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer in Hebrews is saying, continue to persevere looking to Jesus. That's the focal point. We are called to serving, to enduring. We are called to do it as we look to Jesus, as we follow him. If you turn to James chapter 5, we are coming almost to the end of the book of James at this point, this theme of suffering, of enduring through hardship. I've preached about it a number of times before, and it's here again in the book of James. And it is so common throughout Scripture because suffering is common. We deal with hardship and affliction, even if it's not necessarily 
personal suffering, we have relational suffering or people around us who are, who are going through difficult times. And so suffering is just part of life in a fallen world. We sin, others sin against us. We, no matter how hard we try, live in bodies that are still frail and are still ultimately wearing out and subject to injury and disease, and there's simply no escaping trials, discomfort, and hardship. For the believer in Jesus Christ, the question always is, how then will you respond? When that happens to you, as it will happen, how, how do you walk through that? How do you glorify Christ in that? What drives you in that? And I think James speaks to these things in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. We will, Lord willing, we will finish the book next week, pick up in verse 12 and go through the end. But this morning, verses 7 through 11, let me read those just to set the framework for what we're going to look at. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, look, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. A couple things that should jump out at you as we go through this section, particularly in contrast to the last section that we were in last week, which dealt with uh, largely with money, how we uh, earn money, how we spend money, how we save money, and, and, and just some, some principles in terms of dealing with that. Um, he was largely in that last section charging those who were rich and in positions of power who were misusing their money. They were cheating and hoarding and indulging themselves. And, and, and so a lot of what we had seen prior to this was condemnation, was charges against those who mishandled it. Here, see it repeatedly, he says, brothers. He brings back that term that has come up often from James, even, even in confrontation sort of language when he's exhorting them to, to obedience. He often says, brothers. There's a contrast between that section and this who he's speaking about largely, and now he, he refers back to brothers, and we'll come back to that. The other thing then that connects this back to the last one is that word therefore in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, tells us that that warning about money, misusing it or misusing authority, has a connection here to verses 7 through 11. James had paid particular attention to the rich, and as I said to you last time, a lot of the recipients, the original recipients of James's letter were not in that category. They were people who had been scattered by persecution. They were people who were um, undergoing suffering, who had lost possessions, who had lost relationships, who were going through difficulty, and who were able to hear James speak about the rich and those in authority and experience that from, from those who had suffered underneath that. Verses 5 and 6, if you look back for just a moment, I just want to connect this back, the, the, the thought of where James is going. Verse 5, James 5, you have lived, he's speaking to the rich, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And then it's, be patient, therefore, brothers. The connection there is when he says, he does not resist you. He's, he's speaking now to the righteous man at, at that point back in verse 6, describing the righteous man and, and saying how the righteous man is suffering beneath this kind of 
oppression, this kind of injustice, if you will, and he's been confronting that. But his point now is maybe you are that, that righteous one. Maybe you are that one who is seeking to be godly in a world of evil and you are taken advantage of and you are sinned against in some way. And by saying he does not resist you, he's not sort of commending to us here that we just sort of passively take it, that we sort of doormat this thing and, and, and just be walked on. There's, there's lots of biblical principles that go when we are dealing with evil, including speaking the truth in love, um, fleeing in some situations. And so there's other biblical principles. That, that's not the point. What he's really saying when he says he does not resist you is he's not retaliating like the world. The righteous man has suffered, and he has even suffered at the hands of others, but he's not punching back. He, he's not taking up the fight and mocking back and insulting back and retaliating in some way. Uh, in fact, he even speaks in verse 6 of the potential, and, and I don't think this is just sort of figurative illustration when he says you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. The idea that one could even be killed by a powerful and unjust person, his voice being silent, he's, he's no longer resisting, but the point then is his rest ultimately is in the justice of the Lord. The, the lack of retaliation and striking back ultimately comes because we believe that there is a sovereign and just God who rules. And we'll, we'll see that unfolded because this, this passage now that we're reading, 7 through 11, flows right out of that. And, and the truth that God is the true judge who will execute righteous justice really forms the basis for what comes up next when he now speaks to those who are suffering. And he says, here's how you suffer well. Here's what you need to do in light of what's happening to you and, and, and you're experiencing. And I would say he gives three key principles here, and I'm going to summarize them with three words. Be patient, be steadfast, and be uncomplaining. Be patient, be steadfast, and be uncomplaining. Now, before we sort of take that as just that, that's sort of the, the, the framework for all of this, that those are the commands, those are clear but tied into all of this, to everything that he's saying here, is just like the writer of Hebrews was saying when he said to run the race with endurance because we're, we're following Christ, so James is going to say to us, be patient, be steadfast, and be uncomplaining because of Jesus. It, it, it's, it's all rooted around Jesus. It's all rooted around the coming of Jesus. Every one of these principles, he ties back to the fact that Jesus is coming and he is our hope. He is the one to whom we must focus. And so patient, steadfast, uncomplaining because of Jesus. That is the incentive, and you'll see that as we walk through this. The first one, verse 7, be patient. And he even says, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. Jesus is coming back. He will return. There's a, there's a certain degree of passiveness when he says, be patient. We, we know this. This is why we struggle with patience, because we want to be active and fixing and doing. And patience says we're, we're waiting. We're, 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 we're resting. We're, we're waiting for something else to happen at this point. And so we are being patient. It's refraining from stri striking back. The word that he uses here for patient in the, in the command in verse 7 really could be literally translated long-suffering. So two words kind of joined together in the Greek. And the, the first one is makros. Mak we, we would say micro, macro, where we get the, it comes from the Greek roots, something small, something large, the bigger view of something. And so this is makros. And it's the idea of large or long or tall. And the word that's attached to it then is thumos, which is wrath or anger. And so 
It is a, a long sort of experience of wrath, a long sort of experience of trouble, of, of waves coming at you. It's like standing at the, the seashore on a, a real stormy day and the, the waves just keep coming. And that's what he's picturing here with be patient. It is the idea of, of endure for a long time. You're, you're settling in for the long haul as a believer in Jesus Christ. This, this may not be just a, a spurt of suffering. You need to, to, to bear up under this. Don't react quickly. Don't react impatiently or angrily. Well, the only way that you and I can do that is, is because of Jesus. Because that, that's our nature is to react quickly and poorly and impatiently and angrily. That, that's, we want to end circumstances that, that are hard. We want to move away from them. We want to change them quickly. But what he gives here as the incentive is be patient until the coming of the Lord, until the appearance of the Lord. One commentator describes this as militant patience. In other words, it's the idea that I may not like the situation. I may not be embracing. I, I may be being taken advantage of. I may be suffering on account of someone else's sin. But I do so patiently because I know that Jesus is coming, because I know the judge is just. The one who I rest in will ultimately right the wrongs, and he is righteous, and he is good, and I can trust him. Now, again, I can certainly speak the truth in love in those circumstances. There are a number of different ways as a believer that I can react, but fighting back, retaliating, giving in kind is not what we are called to. Instead, he says, be patient because the one who will fight for you is Jesus, and he is coming. The one who will bring justice is Jesus. So to endure, to be long-suffering, is to be like Jesus. Now, we, we typically think of that in terms of the cross, and that's right. The fact that Jesus suffered, that he was um, beaten, that he was mocked, that he was rejected and insulted, and, and, and we see all of that going on and ultimately put on the cross and put to death. But Jesus is continuing to be patient. What we see here, what he's calling us to, is exactly what Jesus does even today. We read the headlines, and sometimes we are appalled at the evil in the world, and we just think, how much worse can it get? Imagine what it's like for a holy, righteous God who created this world, who breathed life into people, and he is continuing to be Patient. This continues to be modeled to us by God. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God will bring justice when Jesus Christ returns. He is, as, as pictured in Revelation, that, that righteous king who comes and, and who brings justice and, and ends man's evil. But the fact that we may not see that happening now, the fact that it carries on today, does not mean that a holy God is, is just sort of tolerating sin. It is his patience that reminds us that he is merciful, that he is still calling sinners to himself. He's still rescuing people like you and I from sin and, and drawing us to himself. He is still saving sinners, and that is his patience. And so what he's calling us to, he himself is exercising. We wait on the Lord even as he waits to bring his judgment and as he continues to pour out his mercy. Paul describes this in 1 Timothy when he talks of himself as being the chief, the foremost among sinners. 
And, and he says the purpose then in his salvation, 1 Timothy 1.16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the leading sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect, and, and we could probably fill in a number of words here, might display his love, his glory, his grace, his mercy. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The fact that God saved me, Paul says, is just a demonstration of his patience, his long-suffering, that he would then draw someone like me to himself and, and transform that heart. That's the same Greek word there that Paul's using, that, that James used. The long-suffering mercy of God brings Paul to faith in Christ and turns him from a persecutor, a killer of Christians, to somebody who is now preaching the gospel and putting his own life at stake again and again and being tormented and persecuted because he wants to bring Christ to these individuals. He wants them to see Jesus Christ in his glory. Now, we say be patient. Big difference between us and, and the Lord's patience is the, the Lord not only sees the end from the beginning, but he is sovereign over all of it. We we walk forward not knowing what tomorrow we will bring. We don't know how this hardship is going to turn out, if it's going to end, when it's going to end. And that's then the picture that James gives with the farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? What, what he's reminding us of here is the, the farmer doesn't, doesn't ultimately know the outcome. He, he plants the seed... And he waters the ground and he, he awaits the, the rain that prepares the soil early and the rain that's necessary as the, the, the seedlings are starting to grow. And he does what he's called to do, but he has a, a desire. He, he hopes that it will produce fruit, but he ultimately doesn't have entire control over that. We know the stories of the farmers who've lost everything. Crops have been destroyed by insects or lack of rain or flooding or, or some other kind of natural disaster. And yet, he brings the farmer up to remind us that that does not deter him. The farmer continues to tend the field. He continues to do the work. He continues to, to be a farmer as he's waiting. So he continues to, to, to function through the things that he is called to do, awaiting the fruit at the harvest. That's the active side of long-suffering that we're called to. We're not called to a long-suffering sort of patience that's just sort of grudgingly sitting in the corner and feeling sorry for ourselves and, and not wanting to engage with anybody and not wanting to do anything. We're called to be like the farmer, the one who continues to go out and tend to the field and tend to the crops and prune and do what's necessary for it to grow. And, and so we as believers are called to still proclaim the gospel, to scatter the seed, to water it, to, to, to trust that God will bring about the fruit just like the farmer, we don't have control over all of our circumstances. We have, we have the ability to, to direct our hearts and, and to, to lead our, our, ourselves to do what that, that which is obedient to him. And that's what he's urging us here is do the good that you know to do. Just like James had taught us earlier, that, that the thing you know to do that is good, do it. Otherwise, it is evil to not do that. Even during difficult times, no matter how struggling we are, it's still opportunities to pray. It's still an opportunity to pray for a brother or sister. It's still opportunity with, with communication nowadays to reach out and encourage and exhort and, and bring words of kindness or ministry to people. There's still lots of opportunities for us to engage, even in our most difficult of days. As verse 8 begins, you also be patient. He's just cited the farmer. He says, just as the farmer 
Can't control all the circumstances, yet he endures and he labors patiently, so too you. Next part of verse 8, then, another command here. He says, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Be patient. Second, be steadfast. Different Greek word that he uses here, the, the Greek word we've talked about this before, sterizo, is the, the, the best illustration probably to get in our minds of what that word looks like to be steadfast, to establish your hearts. Is If you've ever built a fence or seen a fence built, you, you dig the hole for the fence post and you put the fence post in and then you pour cement in to hold the fence post secure, to, to establish it in that place. And that's really what the idea of the, the word sterizo is. It is to, to stand something up and to make it to be firm. But the interesting thing about James's statement here is it's a command to you and I to stand up our hearts. He says, establish your heart, make your heart to be steadfast. James has, has already touched on the heart numerous times throughout this letter, starting back in chapter one when he's cautioned against the, the, the deception of the heart, that the heart can be deceived. Chapter three, he speaks of the heart being the, the, the seat of, of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, that those things can flow from out of the heart. Chapter 4, he talks about the heart again, that we are not powerless over the inner man, but rather to purify your hearts. And then the most recent mention of the heart, we've already read it this morning, was back in chapter 5, verse 5, when he's condemning those who are fattening their hearts. The idea is that you are so indulging yourself, you are giving yourself every desire. You are giving into every whim, every craving that your heart wants. You are just pouring into that and satisfying that. Now he's saying, as believers, establish your heart. What does that mean? It's the idea of, of making my heart, of, of, of training my heart to believe what is true and to cling to what is true and to practice what is true. To establish my heart is to take the truths that I know about Jesus Christ and to stand on those truths, to live in the light of them, to, to ask God to help affect my thinking by those things so that my heart would be unwavering and not, not tempted by evil, not distracted by sin, but rather that, that I would be able to, to, to think about what it is to trust in Jesus Christ and rest in him and know who he is. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul has taught about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fruit of that teaching, the fact that Jesus Christ is risen, is, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So he said, in light of these truths, take them, know them, believe them, and therefore be steadfast because you, you cling to these things because you know them to be true. This is really an area where we as believers cooperate with the Holy Spirit. There is a working of the Holy Spirit to strengthen our hearts, and there is also our cooperation in terms of believing and holding to these things. We know that God strengthens. Colossians 1.11 says that he strengthens us for the very purpose of endurance and patience. God's power is there to equip us to be long-suffering. But the verb in verse 8 is still an imperative. It's still a command. We are also called to establish our hearts. Therefore, to, to trust in the Lord's goodness and what he says. To seek help. If we're going to establish our hearts, it, it, it will be because I, I share with you that I am struggling in hardship, and I want you to encourage and exhort me. I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray that I would be steadfast in this, that my heart would hold firmly to the truth. 
We meditate on the scriptures that tell us God is faithful. We recall testimonies. Another way to make your heart, to sort of pour cement there, to make your heart firm, is to talk with other believers about testimonies of God's faithfulness. How God has delivered time and time again and how good God is and to recall all of his past faithfulness. That helps to solidify my own belief and trust that he remains good. Remain engaged in worship. Continue to serve. Continue to, to strive to glorify him and serve him. And the incentive, again, for all of this, he says in verse 7, uh, verse 8, I should say, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He said it in verse 7, the Lord is coming. He's going to say it three times. Every command has that in, in, in the context here. Jesus is coming. Establish your heart in the midst of hardship. Trust him, believe him, cling to him. Have others pray for you because Jesus is coming. The, the, the picture that he's trying to give here is there's a finish line to this. If you've ever run long distance, you know that somewhere on that run, it's like, this is never going to end. I, I just got to stop because this hurts so much and I don't want to do this anymore. And the incentive is, no, there's a finish line. This, this will stop. I mean, there's some of you who do sort of the ultra marathon thing that just goes on forever and ever, and I don't know how you do that. But, but if you've run just sort of a normal distance, at some point you go, Sorry, I didn't, I'm not picking on any of you who are ultramarathoners. I just don't know how you do it. At some point, you go, there's an end. This will stop. I know this will end. And so I can continue to persevere to the finish. And that's what he does. He keeps setting Jesus in front of them. And he says, I know this is hard. I know that you're suffering. But, but firm your heart. Pour some cement around it. Get some help so that you, you trust that Jesus is good because there is a finish. Jesus is coming. He will deliver you. There is an end in sight. Now, the, the fact that James says this in verse 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand, near, and we know James said this 2,000 years ago, might lead you to, to question, well, well, how near was it? Because near for me is about a half hour from now. When I'm out of here, that's near. James is really, what he's reminding his readers of is, there's nothing more that needs to happen for Jesus to return. The work of redemption is finished. Jesus Christ has come. The Messiah, the long-anticipated Messiah, has come, and he has um, fulfilled the law, and he has given his life as a ransom for sinners. He has risen again. He has ascended into heaven, and he can return for us at any moment. His return is imminent. And so that's what he's trying to encourage his readers with, that, that coming is near. It is more near now than it was when you got up this morning. Sam Albury writes it this way, Jesus came in his incarnation, died, rose again, and is now exalted at the right hand of the Father. Nothing else remains on God's calendar before Jesus' return. We are at the final stages in the last days. The coming of Jesus was for James near, and it remains near for us 2,000 years later. Don't falter in your faith. Don't doubt the Lord's goodness and his faithfulness and his grace and strength. He who carried you before We'll do so again, and, and we can rest in that. So stand firm. Well, just build on this second point. We'll come back to verse 9 and the third point, but verses 10 and 11, I think, build on this idea of steadfastness because, in fact, he includes that in verse 11. But look at verse 10 and 11 a minute. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate 
and merciful. James, in, in urging them to steadfastness, in, in reminding them that the coming of the Lord is at hand, that Jesus' return is near, also then speaks of blessing. And he says, look, there's blessing in being steadfast. Not only is Jesus coming, but if you look back, not, not just look forward to the return of Jesus, but look back to those who have served him faithfully and spoken his word before, you will see his provision for them. So think Jeremiah, think Ezekiel, think Isaiah, think those who proclaimed truth and, and who were ridiculed for that truth and mocked for that truth. And yet, he says, they were blessed. And for those suffering in James's day, he's, he's intending by telling them to take the prophets, take Job, for example. One of the things he's trying to say to them is the same, same thing to you and I, you're not alone. The, the, the greatest temptation for us when we are in times of hardship is to feel lonely, to feel like there is nobody that understands, there's nobody that, that really cares, that there's nobody near to me at this point, and to withdraw. And, and, and James is reminding them, saying, look, look back at the prophets, look at Job. See how, how they endured? See how they suffered? This is not new. This suffering is not something that is unique to you. The Lord sustained them and they remain steadfast. And if you are going to walk with the Lord, you will suffer. But you don't have to be moved by that. You can remain steadfast because the Lord has carried his people through before. And that's the emphasis here. When tested, the prophets remain faithful. That's why he says in verse 10, not just look at the prophets, they spoke in the name of the Lord. They continued to speak. Even as they were suffering, they continued to call the people of Israel and the people of Judah to obedience, to, to trusting in the Lord. They continued to speak his truth, and we count them as blessed. We look back on Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and we know that in life, they experienced God's power and God's grace and God's blessing in life, and we know that then they finished the race, and when they finished the race, they entered into his presence to experience his glory and heard, well done, good and faithful servant. And so when he says, look back on the prophets who were blessed, he's using that for incentive for us. Run the race, continue to persevere through, and what lies before you when, the, when Jesus comes is as great as this experience as the prophets have even now in his presence. And he includes Job in this. He gives Job a place among the prophets. God tells us Job maintained his integrity even when Satan incited God's testing of Job. Job endured. You do see in the book of Job, he did complain. He did ask questions. But he did so, it seems, always under the umbrella of faith. In, in, in all that Job is doing, there's still an anticipation that God knows that God knows the answer to this, even if I don't understand it, even if I wish I hadn't been born, God, I know, still is right and just, so much so that you come to the end of, of Job 42 after the back and forth between God and Job, and it's just Job confessing God's greatness and his power, just a humble recognition of his own finiteness and, and God's majesty. Job 42.12 then says, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Exactly what James is reminding us of here is there is there is blessing in endurance. There is blessing in steadfastness. God promises that. And James is calling you and I to remain firm in our faith. Now, back to verse 9 and the third point. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Suffering well before the Lord. 
Be patient, be steadfast, and third, be uncomplaining. Even on our best days, our days when we know that Jesus is king, that we know that this suffering is not new, that others have suffered, and that suffering is part of what we experience as believers, and we know that God is still on his throne, and we are still trusting in him, to not complain against others is next level sort of thinking for us, because that's that's where it sort of gets down to the practical nuts and bolts of, it's not just groaning. He's not, he's not condemning expressions of sorrow, expressions of groaning, because as human beings, we do groan, and we do, we, we do feel weakness, and we do feel pain, and we express that, and those are emotions that God has given us, but he specifically says, complaining, grumbling against another. It's when that, it's when that pain of suffering now in my heart becomes mad at you, becomes lashing out at you. You don't understand what I'm going through. You're not being sensitive to what I'm experiencing at this point. Maybe you're causing it in some way and I'm lashing out in anger against you. That's what he's forbidding here. This is the, I get agitated at the circumstances and I let you know that. It's groaning that turns into criticism, that turns into disunity and strife. Suffering does not give us a license to complain against others. It, it does not give us permission now, okay, it, this, this is high-level suffering, so you can say what you want at other people. Scripture never gives us that permission. He, he continues to urge us to speak that which is helpful for building others up. But we are called now not to complain against others because that's our model. That's Jesus. That's Jesus on the cross. That's what Peter said in 1 Peter 2. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ is our model. And Christ did not retaliate back. He did not complain against. He continued to submit himself to the will of the Father. And so we, no matter what we are in, we need to be intentional about our speech. We need to be seeking to, to speak tenderly and gently and kindly and truthfully and lovingly and not tearing people down, especially during times of suffering when we're tempted otherwise. Also means that we are not permitted to return evil for evil. We still, still are desiring to serve, to, to continue to praise and worship God and love others. The incentive then here is another form of the one he's given now twice already. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Look, the judge is standing at the door. One more time, it's Jesus is coming. The first two times it was, be patient. The judge, he's, he's coming and he'll deliver you and he'll bring righteousness and righteous justice. And then be steadfast, he's near. Now he says, you don't be complaining because the judge is standing at the door. Now it's in the form of warning that Jesus is coming and the, the thing you don't want to do is be ashamed at his coming. You, you don't want to be lashing out at somebody when the king returns. So Sam Albury, again, I just think says it so well. The judge is at the door and it's hard to imagine him nearer than that. The handle is about to turn and so we are to speak to one another in such a way that we would not be ashamed of the Lord Jesus himself being within earshot. I think that's a great description. The nearness of the return of Jesus Christ not only gives me encouragement to know that he will bring righteous judgment, it not only means he will bring blessing to those who suffer in his name, 
but it also warns that he is returning for you and I who are trusting in him, and we should be living in light of that. Our lives should be being ready for the return of Jesus Christ and striving after him. In the end, that's the key to this passage. You can get the three commands, and you can remind yourself to, to be patient, be steadfast, to be uncomplaining, but if you miss the fact that each one of those revolves around Jesus, then you miss the heart of it. Because we are to do those things, because first, our, our Savior modeled those things. Our Savior came, and he demonstrated for us what long-suffering is, what, what steadfastness is, what not complaining against others is. He modeled that for us. That same Savior is with us now. He promises to never leave or forsake you. He is with you now to give you strength and to enable you to endure through hardship. And as James would remind us, that same Savior is coming. Jesus is the King who is returning for his people. And when he does, here's the great hope that James holds out. When the King comes, we will go to be with him. And all of the, the suffering and the hardship will end. And we will spend eternity enjoying the delights of our Savior in his presence. And all of this will seem, as Paul wrote, light, seem light and momentary as we look back on it. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the hope that is in the cross and the resurrection. Thank you that these are not just sort of uh, positive thinking terms that we just, we just need to be nicer and more patient with people and not complaining against them and, and, and just seeking to do good. These, these things are true because you came and you died and you rose again and you transform your people because of what you accomplished. There is forgiveness of sin and there is eternal life and there is hope that extends beyond this life. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that as you promised to the disciples before you ascended into heaven, so to us, you are with us always, even unto the end of the age. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone listening this morning here online who lacks that hope, who doesn't see your return as, as the greatest joy that lies ahead, as the hope Lord, I pray that today they, they would know that you came as, a, as the perfect Son of God, came in flesh, obeyed God's law perfectly, and then you were crucified, put to death to pay the price for our sins. Lord, we are the, the ones who are selfish and quick-tempered and bitter when, when we are tested with hardship. You came and you suffered for our sin, and rose again that we might rise again to eternal life. And so, Father, if there's anyone here lacking that hope, would you graciously open their eyes to see Jesus as the Savior, as the one who offers life and forgiveness. For your people, Lord, help us this week. I, I pray, I know there are brothers and sisters here that this passage in James resonates with even more so than others, because they are walking through valleys. They are walking through sickness, through hardship, through relational struggles, through um, people who are um, just sinning against them in some way. Lord, I pray that your word would bring encouragement and hope 
that they would seek help from brothers and sisters, that they would trust in your promises and, and seek to be strengthened and encouraged in their hearts. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is coming and who is coming for his people. We join with the writer and say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We long for that day when our Savior returns. It's in his name we pray. Amen.